Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. After expending significant effort to construct a genealogy almost from scratch, only now as he approaches his knockout punch, Son of Man, Ben Adam, Son of God, Luke draws upon pre-existing material to finalize his inverted dynasty. Climbing past an excerpt borrowed from Matthew detailing Abraham's line, we now stumble across another collection of names, this time from Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 to 26. The focus, of course, is shepherdism. Human beings want to distinguish themselves as individuals while simultaneously criticizing exceptionalism in others. We revel in tearing down heroes and authority figures while singing songs about heroism, congratulating ourselves about ourselves. Our politics, literature, and media celebrate this freedom. Unfortunately, some people confuse this with what scripture is doing. In making the line of Arpakshad under Shem functional in his ideology, Luke proposes an alternative to sitcom ideology, which tries to be clever in its cultural critique, but fails. You cannot ridicule sin unless you yourself preach as one condemned. Otherwise, you glorify sin. Approaching the end of chapter 3, Luke ridicules both the sin and the sinner preaching the story of Genesis 11 in which all human beings are sheep under one shepherd. Sheep do not speak. Sheep are in no way exceptional or in a position to criticize unless, like Luke, the shepherd gives them something to say. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, Verses 35 to 36. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 487 of the Bible as Literature podcast this past weekend. On Father's Day, I delivered a very uncomfortable message about the question of reference to the parish, specifically to the fathers, but just as easily to the mothers. You can't say Happy Father's Day if you're a scriptural person, because the good book says in no uncertain terms that you may not refer to any human being as your reference. Now, of course, we call our parents, father, 
or mother. We call the priest father if you happen to be Greek Orthodox or Roman Catholic. We refer to our teacher as professor. We refer to people by their title all the time because it's a way of communicating. And it's the correct way to communicate. Because when you play the game of referring to your teacher by their first name, this is what's so irritating about contemporary society. You think you're obeying the commandment when you call your parent by their first name. But when you play that game, you make yourself the reference, thus transgressing the law of God. Because when you glorify yourself instead of glorifying your parent, which is the commandment in Genesis, it's not honor your father and mother. The root is kabod. You glorify your father and mother so that it will be well with you. When you don't glorify the one who is above you in the pecking order, you glorify yourself. So it's a quandary if you don't know scripture meaning if you're not hearing it every day. It's a question of reference and functionality. You need to make the effort every day to hear Scripture beginning, only because this is what we're talking about on the podcast these days, Rich, beginning with the genealogy in Luke. Why on earth would Luke all of a sudden lift two verses out of Genesis. And why would he choose two verses which include a non-Semitic name as your ancestor, as children of Abraham, tracing the line back to Adam? Why would he do that when you're so proud of being a Semite? When you're so proud of being the children of Shem, why suddenly would you have this name Arpachshad, which is a non-Semitic name? It's a question of reference. On what basis do you consider yourself the children or the sons of Shem? The name. On what basis do you consider yourself Shemites? Are you truly Shemites if the son of Shem is not a Shemite? <laughs> how does that work? That's how scripture works. It's a question of referentiality. If Shem is your reference, if Shem is your elder, if the name is your reference, it's no problem whatsoever that Arpachshad is your ancestor. Because while he may function as a reference for his son, he's not the reference. But if you're trying to establish a dynasty and Arpakshad, who doesn't have a Semitic name, is suddenly your ancestor, you have a problem. The son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Heber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arpachshad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech. This name is a surprising one to find in the line. Luke is more or less 
copying from Genesis 11, 10 through 26, or at least abbreviating. In Genesis, you hear about all the brothers and all the nephews and things like that, whereas Luke is single-mindedly focused on the genealogy of Joseph. And so we're only concerned with the direct ancestors of Abram slash Abraham. This is the focus, but you still have to see what's happening in Luke in the context of what is happening in Genesis, because it's clear. And it bears reminding that Arphaxad is the middle son of Shem. And Shem is where we get the word Semite from. It means name, but it also is this word for Shemite. So exactly, Father, there's this irony that all these other peoples are well-known, quote, Semitic peoples, unquote, and Arphaxad is not. And what do I mean by that? Arphaxad sounds like it's more like a Persian name or something like that, which is an Indo-European name as opposed to a Semitic name. You're just speaking about language origins. Moreover, the brothers of Arphaxad, the other sons of Shem, are well known. Elam, there's the Elamites. People know about the Elamites. They get mentioned elsewhere. Ashur, that's the name of the main city of the Assyrian Empire. Ashur, Assyrians, you see the correspondence there. Lud, I won't talk about Ludites. Those are a different thing. That would be an anachronism. And then we have Aram, who is the founder of the city of Aram, which is where we get the word Aramean from, which is an empire in its own right in its time. So all the other cities have significance, and they're all eponymous of sons of Shem, and we have this Arpaxad. So he is the one who's chosen to bear this line to Abram. So following with what we see elsewhere in Scripture, we have the unexpected one, the outsider, who's the one who bears the name. It's not the oldest, it's the middle. It's not the one with a clearly Semitic name, it's the one who's got kind of a Persian-sounding name. It's the outsider. This is what Genesis is focusing on, and this is what Luke is trapped in if he's going to trace this through Abram. He's trapped in this same line that goes through this unexpected ancestor. Now, in The Rise of Scripture, Father Paul obviously deals with these names and their significance. He deals heavily with the terminology of these passages, and he talks about, for example, the meaning of the word Peleg, it comes from the verb palag, which means to divide in two. And Arpakshad is one of two brothers, Yuktan being the other brother. So in its setting in Genesis, the name Peleg pertains to the division of the Syrian wilderness. And that makes sense because the name Reu means literally ye shepherd, you know, the one who's grazing. It relates to the verb ra'ah, which is shepherd, to graze. So we're talking now, as we get closer to son of Adam, ben Adam, son of God, we're talking now about the scriptural setting, which is God literally commanding, telling his sons to go out into the wilderness and perform their function as the sons of God, the sons of Adam, and to shepherd in the wilderness. But it's critical that we hear this fly in the ointment. And I want to go back to this discussion of reference and function, Rich, because we, in our effort to build a dynasty, 
we want a Toledot, we want a genealogy, we want a patrimony to be about some kind of a human dynasty. We want a pure patrimony that points to something we can lift up and say, look at what Constantine built. Look at what George Washington built when he stepped down from his throne. Look at this amazing human dynasty. And we fall in the trap of painting pictures of these men on the ceiling. It's a huge mistake. It's a huge mistake. What scripture is doing is saying there's nothing to look at. You think that there's some kind of a lineage that you can boast about. Whatever it is you think that you can brag about, in this case, you would brag that we're the Semites, we're the Shemites. This is who we are. But then why suddenly out of the blue, there's this non-Semitic name? What are we talking about here? This is systematic in scripture. One way or another, whatever it is you expect, there's always something that perturbs or undermines your expectations. That's the key point here. Your mother was a Hittite. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And in Genesis, you, the children of Shem, guess what? Your father was not a Semite. And Luke is bringing that and making it functional here in his genealogy. It's not only unexpected because it's not a Semitic name. It's also not expected because he's not the oldest. But because Shem is the elder, he decides who sits on his knee. Ultimately, because the author of the text is the reference, he decides who comes after Shem. But the name Shem, because it pertains to the name of God. Remember, Shem is a big deal in scripture. So when you say Shem, it has a value functionally. It's the name of the Lord that we're talking about. It's not just the name of this guy. He's a kind of Kyrios functionally. Remember, anyone can be a stand-in, a locum tenens, for Elohim functionally in the story. That's how it works. So if the one who is a locum tenens for the Almighty, and the name Shem has a kind of weightiness, if his son happens to be a character whose name is non-Semitic, if his son, who carries the line, happens to not be the oldest, tough luck. God can choose who he wants. And if that's the person who's above you in the pecking order, that person is your reference. Tough luck. Because if you pertain to the elder of Arpakshad, whose name is the name, tough luck, O Jerusalem. Tough luck. This is what the Sovereign Lord is saying to you. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites.
Your father was not a Semite, yet you pertain to the name. That is really a heck of a statement, especially when you're being told that I'm going to push you out into the Syrian wilderness among all the other sheep. Again, you imagine that you're part of a tribe among tribes, but in Scripture, there's only the one shepherd in the heavens. The name Shem, Hashem, and you are one among many sheep. Now, not all of those sheep have Semitic names. What are you going to do about it? So Luke is now playing on this very difficult teaching of Scripture that you have one father who is in the heavens and everybody else is just a sheep in his flock. We're getting down to business now in Luke, Rich. As we move back, it's always a little bit confusing because obviously Luke goes in a different order than in Genesis. Genesis goes from father to son. Luke goes from son to father. So when I say forwards and backwards in the line, it gets a little bit confusing. But if we go backwards in Luke, forward in the genealogy, Luke does a very strange thing in 36, which is the son of Arphaxad is Canaan. That is not in Genesis. This is where Luke uses more of his poetic license that he's been using elsewhere in this chapter. Why Canaan? According to Genesis 10.24, the son of Salah, or Shelah in Hebrew, is the son of Arphaxad. In Luke, he's the grandson, and you have Canaan in between. And I'm really grateful, Father, that you brought up Ezekiel 16, because it says that you are a Canaanite. Well, how do you make sure that they know that they're a Canaanite? Well, notice that we have this name that's transliterated in the King James as Heber, H-E-B-E-R in English in the King James. It's Eber in Greek, but it's Ebri in Hebrew, which means Hebrew. So when we hear later on in Genesis about Abram, who is the Hebrew, it means he's a son of Heber. So we have Canaan, who's the father of Shelah, who's the one who's sent, that's what that means, who's the father of the Hebrew, Heber. This is the way that the line goes down. It goes from this non-Semitic person to this Canaanite, the arch-rival of the Semitic peoples, or at least to the sons of Israel. And then you have the one who's sent, and you have the one who is the Hebrew. This line is meaningful because, again, it keeps switching our expectations. It's not the one that you would expect. It adds a little extra twist to that by adding a Canaanite, the Canaanite, Canaan. The guy's name is Canaan, and it's not from Genesis. So Luke is underscoring this distinction between who you think your ancestors are and who they actually are. This is the genealogy of doom. Remember, it's the one that ends in Herod, and it goes through these different machinations, these different routes, where God keeps offering these opportunities that keep getting ignored. He gives the whole option of the unexpected, the non-imperial Arphaxad going through the Canaanite who is the enemy, going through the one who sent, the one who is your ancestor, the ancestor of Abram, and then the one who spreads out, divides up, and the one who shepherds 
this is the line. This is the opportunity that was given back in the day, but it always ends in the same route. It ends up in Joseph, who is a human who's eventually going to have a human son, and when that human son comes to power, he's going to be a regular old human power, just like Herod. It makes complete sense with the inversion of the Lucan genealogy that as you scale up this inverted genealogy, you approach Elohim and you're forced to submit to Arpachshad and the Canaanites as your stand-in reference for the authority of God the Father. It fits the paradigm of the New Testament. It makes total sense. That is the difficulty of the New Testament, that you have to deal with the imposition of something so unpleasant. It is the dark saying of Psalm 78 that you have to deal with your stubborn ancestors. I'm not making a negative or a positive statement about your father who was an Amorite <laughs> or your mother who was a Hittite. I'm just saying that this is what the Lord God said to Jerusalem, that your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. And by the way, before you clap for Shem, remember that between you and Shem comes Arpachshad. That's the deal. What do you do with that? Within the context of a story that presents to you a law that demands in no uncertain terms that you are to glorify your father and your mother. And it has nothing to do with your 4th of July banquet <laughs> where you're kind to your mommy and your daddy and fix them a plate of food so that you feel good about yourself. No way. It has nothing to do with your family first nonsense. It is a dark saying. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.